and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast usually dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who, but not today. We are going to be back in the realms of Star Trek, and more specifically, the Star Trek movies, and more specifically, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, and Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. So that's going to be a whole lot of fun. But as always, I'm going to be here with my co-host, Kev Gosser. Say hi, Kev. Hi. You looking forward to the world of Star Trek today? Well, I have been exiled to the prison planet of Rurapente, so I think my life is going pretty well. Fantastic. No dilithium mining for us. Well, we're going to kick off with Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And Kev, would you care to give us a summary without using the words, it's the one with whales in it? Sure. An alien probe comes requesting uh, the li- uh, to see aquatic mammals from Earth's past. Oh, I'll have to use the word whales. But whales are now extinct in Star Trek's future requiring the Enterprise to sort of travel back in time, or I guess it's the bounty in this case, travel back in time to recover the whales and show them to the aliens and make them happy. That's sort of the short of it. What happens in between is a lot of hijinks in 1986 as the Enterprise crew started to fit in with the past time period. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, so, I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, I made the point at the top, but it's it's the one with the whales, and there really is no no sort of getting around that. But um, yeah, so is this the first time you've seen this one? Yes, and this is going to be true for all three of them uh, today. Yeah, Fantastic. first first time I've seen it, I is such a good time. Like I I almost want to say I loved it, but then there's one I love one coming up even more. So it's like it's, <laughs> which one could that be? It. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, five. No. Um, <laughs> but yes, it's. I don't almost want to not hit set the bar so high because I know it's going to be surpassed later on in the conversation. But this is such a fun movie, and just all of like the jokes and gags just work so well. And to see such a tonal shift from the last couple of movies into pure comedy is such a good fit. It's incredible. I think it's one of the things that's very easily forgotten about the sort of original crew, but they are really good at doing comedy when they set their mind to it. And I think it probably helps that, um, to a certain extent, some of that is reined in here a little bit. So, you know, given free reign, William Shatner can go a bit over the top when it comes to comedy stuff. But, you know, he's held back a little bit by both the script and both by uh, the script and uh, Leonard Nimoy as as director here. And it, it... I don't know. They're just they're, they've got a really good the whole cast, not just those two, but the whole cast have this really great sort of comic rhythm to them, and they land. I, they, I mean, this ought to be insufferably corny and and cliche and whatever, and it's a very typical kind of eighties culture clash comedy, in in one sense. But they just it, it's it's got such a joie de vivre about it. It's got such a a sense of fun it's it's self-aware but it's not sort of tediously meta it's just it's just such a it's just such a fun time yeah i completely agree obviously it's and i don't know if i can really say much more beyond just like listing gags we liked because it's so like if there's one criticism the story is so thin they show up in the there's a lot of exposition to get them into the 80s they show up in the 80s you have a blast with point out every gag you can imagine as it sort of goes to the motion of having a story of how we're going to rescue these whales. And then they get back to the future and it's over. And there's like incidents and scenes that happen, but it's not much of an arc. There's very little character development in the way. 
Uh, it really is just an engine for this idea. What if we put these characters you're familiar from the future into our present day? How silly would it be to see them interact with things? Well, absolutely. And, you know, obviously the answer to that question is it's just tremendous fun to see them do it. But I quite... I, I realize Strange Alien Probe uh, Attacks Earth is the same plot as the motion picture. Um, I like the fact that it's very abstract here, that we don't get any explanation. It's very silly. And it's maybe, I mean, the whole plot is, is I mean, it's barely even a framing device. Um, but it is sort of weird and abstract and, and sort of odd in a way that I think the original show isn't very often. Um, you have that with that that really strange morphing head sequence as well when they're traveling back in time it's really abstract and in a way that that the original show just isn't but it suits them incredibly well i think um so i quite like the fact that the the, the threat is it's too much to call it existential there's not enough of it to hang that on really i mean at least at least this time round um, when all life is threatened on earth we get to spend a little bit of on time on earth seeing life being threatened. So we get Mark Leonard sort of, you know, looking sort of Roman and, and noble in the background and, and, you know, a breaking window. Ooh, the expense of it all. Um, but, you know, at least we get some impact of, of, the, of what's going on. Um, and, you know, the, the environmental, th I mean, what could be more 1980s than, uh, you know, Save the Whales? But so there, you know, it isn't just a culture clash comedy. There is a little bit of kind of um, underpinning to it, I suppose, to give it, something and they uh, of course the environmental message is 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 terribly sort of star trek and it, it gives it just a little bit more bite than, than than let's have a laugh even although almost all of it is let's just have a laugh yeah and i like and i'm assuming that's what nimoy brings to it from everything i've read about it and heard about it after sort of doing research around my watching the movie is that it's sort of his ideas to let's have a modern message let's have it be an environmental message and eventually landing on let's have them save the whales. And I do like that underpinning does bring it a little more weight, which is like much appreciated for sure. It's pretty much the only weight this movie has, but <laughs> it works. Um, yeah, I guess the only other really a recurring plot line with any sort of emotional stake in it is the human woman that Kirk finally gets to fall in love with after three fairly sexless movies for him. Yeah, Dr. Gillian Taylor, played by um, uh, Catherine Hicks. Um, I mean, she's not the most compelling aspect um, of, of the movie. I mean, she's not bad, um, but she does seem to... Th I mean, she's playing it like she's in a screwball comedy. And that's close to what she's being in, but it's not just exactly right. Um, it, it is, it's ever so slightly... Um, I don't, not off. That's too strong. But she's not exactly in sync with the comedy aspects of the the rest of the cast. They're, they're like all of the all of the regulars are. They are just humming along like a, a perfectly tuned motor. Everything like that. That scene in the pickup truck, uh, which Gillian uh, Taylor is there for. Um, when they're, you know, the whole thing about LDS and, and all that kind of stuff. It's just the, the way that Shatner and Nimoy work together in that scene is just pretty much, from my point of view, the best comedy scene across any kind of iteration of Star Trek. It's perfect. 
and she's there, but she's not really doing much with it. And that's kind of like she's she's it's it's kind of a necessary thing. Kirk has a a bit of a romantic relationship with someone in the past, and for no readily apparent reason, she decides to come. Well, no, there is an apparent reason. It's just not a very good one. Uh, she comes to the future, <laughs> never to be seen again. I mean, that's fine. That's kind of that's 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 the way these kind of roles go. Um, and she's okay. She's fine. I don't. I, was, I think I'm sounding more critical of her than I mean to. But it's not like everybody else is bringing their A game, and she's maybe B plus. And that's 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 not a bad place to be, really. But still, everybody else is at their kind of comedy A game, so the gap is still slightly visible. Maybe that's a way to say it. Yeah, I think that is completely accurate. Yeah, I she isn't definitely not the most compelling part. I think there are some fun scenes, like. I think her on like the date with Kirk is kind of a funny scene, though there's funnier. And I, do, I like the idea that she wants to go to the future. It's like, no, get me out of the 80s. You guys live in a <laughs> socialist utopia spaceship land. So <laughs> that's so much better than what I have right now. I, I, I relate to that impulse for sure. Um, yeah, I, that's, I like that nice sort of twist on the sort of time travel story. And even if there's obviously going to be no consequences, uh, for like future things down the line, it is fun that she gets to just go to this sort of better world, as it were. And I think she's also good at doing the kind of the concern for the whales. I think that side of her character works better. She gets some some scenes at the aquarium and whatever when the whales have been released, particularly. She seems genuinely very upset by it, um, the fact that there's stuff going on which is you know out with her control. Um, so I think she's strong, uh, stronger at playing uh, that side. But she's not, like I say, I don't mean to make it sound like she. I think she's bad. She's not. She's absolutely fine in the role. But again, everyone else is just like on their game. And it's, you know, especially when you have an ensemble crew like this. This is definitely true of the next generation as well. Um, when they're all clicking together in a in a an episode or a movie or whatever it is that gives them all something to do it kind of it can't help but sort of push everybody else to the margins not because the other people involved are are, are less skilled or or, or or have less ability or, or worse lines or whatever it is just because there's such a a pleasure because these are the characters you're invested in and like one shot characters like like um like uh, dr taylor just aren't going to carry the same resonance. They can't because they don't have those sort of accumulated years of, of experience and, and sort of, li- you know, the way you live with characters. Um, and so they just can't help but be pushed to the margin. You know, Mark Leonard is in this. Mark Leonard's fabulous and he's wonderful and brilliant. And, um, you know, he has the same kind of uh, history with the show as, as, the, as the regulars do. But even he kind of gets slightly... Uh, pushed off to the side except for that final scene and we'll get onto that because it's brilliant um and so it's just the way that everything clicks here it's just this is a film which is actually about all of the crew and i think that's really the first time that this has been true across the the, the toss movies um i suppose it's kind of true about the uh, the slow motion picture but um, this, i mean you know Chekhov and scotty are given nothing to do in that movie whatsoever whereas everyone gets something to really contribute here and um and it just works like gangbusters it's just it's just so lovely to spend time seeing everybody get it right yeah i totally agree i mean i i honestly can't think of what else to talk about on this movie beyond just like shouting out like the best bits which i think would draw sort of the 
end the discussion, but we'll still, uh, we still have a lot of bits to talk about. <laughs> so I love, uh, I think the first one that really grabbed me once I go back to the past is like when the first scenes I go to back to the past with Kirk in the pawn shop, not understanding how money works, and <laughs> pawning these glasses that uh, he was received as a he received as a gift, and then not understanding two hundred dollars is a lot of money. That like already the way Shatner plays that, like trying to keep his cool and just like ah two hundred dollars. Yes, I definitely know how much money that is. <laughs> I mean, I that was when I instantly clicked into the movie and it never really let go. It was perfect from then on out. Yeah, and again, it's that thing that you you know you don't think that Shatner would be able to play that kind of comedy without kind of mugging or going over the top, but he really doesn't. He really keeps it together, and he makes it feel like you know Kirk is desperate. He's meant to be the guy that knows how this stuff works. He's gonna have to bluff his way through it, and he kind of does, and he sort of gets away with it as well. It's just it's incredibly charming, and that's like all the bits in this film that work. Um, they're just uh, in the past. That is, they're just incredibly charming and 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 likable, and it's one of those films that so much of it is 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 kind of well known now. Um, it it's not the it's not Khan or kind of level of well known, but like everyone knows the one with the whales, and there's a good reason for that. It's just it's such a fun knockabout comedy. Um, you don't need to be a Star Trek fan to enjoy it. You just need to find things funny to enjoy it. And I think that's like that that pawn shop scene is like a perfect kind of nucleus of that. It's just like everybody's reacting in exactly the correct way. Nobody's going over the top. Everything is well controlled. It's well directed by Namoy, but particularly I think in terms of the characters, it's well directed. And it just all, it all just all clicks. It's just again everything sort of firing in all cylinders. And like even the silly scene in the bus with a punk which is just ludicrous and daft and and again it it doesn't work it it shouldn't really be as funny as it is and i must have seen that scene i don't know a hundred times probably and i still laugh every single time it's just insane comedies shouldn't do that they should you know when you know the gag that's it but that's that's the measure of a good comedy you know the jokes keep working even when you know them yeah i i i completely agree i think the punk scene is great um Scotty trying to use an 80s PC is also really funny. Always good. Yes. Um, yeah, and then just... I don't know, I was thinking, like, uh, Catherine or Cassmember, like, everyone does such a good job in sort of playing the farce in different ways. I think Nimoy's constant aloofness as Spock in all of the situations he's put into is just very funny when he's walking around with like the headband on his head and the sort of bathrobe dress um, with uh, Catherine Hicks sort of questioning him at all turns. I just think that's such like a great, just a constant presence, not even really a specific joke, but just him being there is always a little funny. Yeah, and it, and it always, it never really pulls focus, but it kind of pulls the characters in the right direction, which is also really nice as well. Like the, the, the slight restraining um, influence that he has on Kirk is nice because Kirk's clearly having a, I was going to say he was having a whale of a time. I'm sorry, that wasn't even, <laughs> that wasn't even meant to be an intentional pun. But, you know, he's clearly loving it. He's enjoying being in the past, um, you know, 
obviously it's a serious situation that they're trying to address, but, you know, compared to Khan and his murdered son and exploding planets and, you know, whatever from the last couple of movies, like, of course he's having fun with this because kind of, it's not that the pressure's off, but this he's got scope to, you know, do something else. And, and, and Kirk is clearly loving that. And of course, Shatner's enthusiasm can't help but bleed through into that as well. But the way that he's able to just be pulled back by Nimoy's presence and by Spock's presence. Again, I think it, it's that thing that, um, you know, Shatner is a very, can be a very effective actor, a very good actor, a very funny actor, but he needs to have that um, restraining hand on his shoulder that just goes, you know, this far, no further. Now, we will talk about this more when we get to the next movie for <laughs> certain. Um, but here, I think that's, that's what makes all those things work. And, and and you're right. I mean, Nimoy is just glorious in this. And just that ability to just remain aloof, to remain slightly apart. But he's still, you know, he's exerting his influence. He's keeping people on mission. He's keeping people in the right sort of frame of mind. It's a lovely performance from, from Nimoy. Actually, one of my absolute favorites. Yeah, I think... Uh... Honestly, he does a great job directing himself. He knows exactly what he wants. He is so fully embodied this character, and he can just nail it. Like everyone can, really. Everyone they've spent so much time with playing these characters. They just know what to do in every situation. And I think, uh, I mean, the script is also credited to uh, the story is rather Nimoy, uh, with like five other people with the screenplay credit. But I think that core of it, it really does more read as this cast knows what to do for their characters. And I think even if you have like Nicholas Meyer and his names I don't recognize in the screenplay credits, um, it just feels so much more driven by the cast than it is by anyone in the writer's room. They, even if it takes someone else to come up with the idea of you're in the 80s now, it almost feels like they would know their own bits that they can play perfectly. And you've got someone handing them the bits. They just know how to play it so well at this point. Well, I think the other thing which is really clear about um, Leonard Nimoy's role in this is that he's, you know, after sort of three movies, basically, of, of not really wanting to be Spock and then just doing it anyway, this seems to be the first movie where he's like really, like full on, he's in. You know, he's given up resisting it you know it's not going to work you spot my mate you might as well just get on with it and he seems to have kind of accepted that and and sort of um is running with it and he had that final scene at the end of star trek 3 when they were in vulcan and you know my name, your name is jim and all that kind of stuff and that was the best he'd been in a very long time um but he seems to have really just found his groove in the character again he's he's yeah he's given up resisting the the sort of the gravity of the character and that i think partly accounts for why Spock feels like such a, a presence in this movie where he maybe hasn't so much in the previous three um, and yeah and obviously he's in the director's chair as well he's contributing to the writing so he's you know he's fully on board he's completely you know in for this and yeah it just it, it can't help but shine through but everybody is um, and you know like I mean, it's really silly, but like Sulu chatting up a helicopter pilot so that they can, you know, get get the um, get the helicopter to lift the transparent aluminum into the into the Klingon ship. It's like how long is that scene? Like thirty seconds or something. George Takei doesn't have an awful lot to work with in it, but he's just alive in that scene. He's he's just 
again, I keep coming back to the word charming, but he's charming mm-hmm. and, and delightful and it's lovely. And he's clearly chatting up the, the, the helicopter pilot. There's no, there is no way out of that. So it's fabulous to see. Um, and, and just like everybody, like you mentioned Scotty with the mouse, that's, that's just great. And James Doon is funny. And it's almost the last time James Doon makes even a tiny little bit of effort when it comes to acting. So that's nice to see. And um, yeah, it's, it's great. Of we have to mention the scene with Uhura and Chekhov, um, of yes. course, the nuclear vessel scene, uh, which is inescapable for any number of reasons, but they're both just great in that scene. Oh, absolutely. Again, like, they know these characters so well. And, I mean, yeah, I, Koenig just plays the panic and <laughs> the slow realizing of what's going on just so perfectly. And I love his little, like, frantic escape scene. That's also so funny. <laughs> yeah, it gives them something to do. And, you know, again, everyone does get something to do here. But that scene, um, I love that scene, the nuclear vessel scene, partly because it's very funny, obviously. Of course it is. Um, but I also I also think it's a really pointed scene. I think it's very much kind of a, a very sort of Star Trek-y thing because... It's, I mean, it's really important that it's the um, African-American character and the Russian character who are sent on this mission. And that kind of, that kind of um, colorblindness that Kirk has, because it, it wouldn't even cross his mind that it would be a mistake to send those people into that situation. But it's really pointed because I don't think everybody remembers it for the funny bit where, where um, uh, Chekhov can't say nuclear vessels properly. Um, but it's really pointed because... Um, of Ahura, and that's where I think the emphasis in that scene lies. It, it's it's really about the fact that a, an African-American woman with a conspicuously American accent is treated and sort of dismissed out of hand um, and put in the same category as somebody who's sort of visibly the enemy at that point, somebody from Russia. Um, and, and she's treated with sort of contempt and dismissal in exactly the same way that Chekhov is, and it's a really sharp little piece of um, satire. It, it's very, very Star Trek, and it's completely de-emphasized because the real, you know, the primary focus is on the the, the funny, uh, you know, how do we get to Alameda and, and nuclear vessels stuff. But it's a really lovely little moment in the film, and again, it's just a little extra bite. So it's funny, but it's not just funny. It makes all the difference in the world. And I love, I, I always love Michelle Nichols. She's just just wonderful but i love her in that scene so much oh yeah i michelle nichols is also obviously fantastic there's just one other thing that i want to mention in this film and then we can we can move on which is that final scene uh once they've gone back to uh, the future and once they are um you know sort of busted down and rank and all the rest of it there's a scene between um mark leonard and Leonard and Amoy, Sarek and Spock. And it is one, it, it, it doesn't come up very often, I don't think, when people talk about great Star Trek scenes, but it is one of the most well constructed, well put together pieces, I think, across the whole of Star Trek. Um, and it's that moment where Sarek admits that he was wrong to oppose Spock's entry into Starfleet. He acknowledges that um, Spock's friends are people of good character, people of good standing. And there's that kind of that um, breaking down of barriers between father and son that have been in place for as long as we've known them, certainly since uh, Journey to Babel when um, Sarek first appeared. 
And it's just a glorious scene. Mark Leonard, of course, is a genius actor. Of course he is. But just the way that Leonard Nimoy steps up his game right at the end of the movie and the beautiful little... I'm sorry, I have to use the word emotional, but the beautiful emotional kind of plays between the two characters, that tiny look of disappointment um, when uh, Sarek asks Spock if he has a message for his mother and he replies, he feels fine. And But the problem is Sarek's, it's not Spock's. Spock has kind of got beyond that. And that'll come back again in Star Trek Six. And I love that little scene. Again, it's only maybe two minutes long, but it's just glorious. I think since we've talked about the ending, it's time to move on to the next movie. And so let's talk about Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And this installment, uh, very importantly, directed by William Shatner. Um, yeah, the crew of the Enterprise comes across the renegade Vulcan Cybok, who has taken this whole sort of peace outpost planet hostage in hopes of luring the Enterprise here and taking the ship through the Great Barrier where they can meet God. They meet an entity who looks a lot like God, uh, but then Kirk asks the very relevant question, what does God need with a starship? So I guess it's not God. And then they run away, and God, and God in inverted commas is, uh, goes away. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> Fabulous. Now, I know that obviously this is your first time in this movie, and I know obviously that this movie does not have uh, perhaps the reputation that, that some of the other ones might have, I think it's fair to say. So I, I'm i going to come straight out and say I am a defender of this movie. I'm not going to tell you that it's a great movie. That would be absurd. Uh, but I think it's an interesting movie, and yeah. I think there's a lot to commend it. So I'm really interested in, in sort of what you're your take is given that you know that most people think it's garbage yeah. and given that it's your first uh, your first run at it. So yeah, what did you think? I had a fun time watching it. I mean, obviously in my summary, it was a little, it's hard to talk about or summarize this movie without being a little eye-rolling dismissive. Yes. Because <laughs> it is <laughs> ludicrous. It is so goofy. But that's also kind of fun. And I think like the pacing of this movie feels very modern in a sense. The pacing and tone specifically. Um just the constant stream of like action and then quick exposition and then back to action. And except for that long sequence from the end where they're just climbing a mountain for 20 minutes, uh, everything else moves at a brisk pace. Uh, it drops a reveal like every other scene. And then the tone is like, it's very much that sort of moder Marvel movie tone where we're taking things seriously in-universe, but also the characters are kind of being a little self-aware and jokey about it. Like, there's always, like, some sort of quip or another, or some sort of comedic thing. That's not, like, broad comedy, like the fourth movie, but just, like, like Spock saying, oh, you didn't know I had a half-brother? It never came up. Or, <laughs> the, like, the marshmallow scene. Like, there's, like, little comic beats that sort of pepper in there in between the sort of uh, lasers and punching. So yeah, it's entertaining, it holds my attention. I would honestly put it on par with many a uh, modern blockbuster, though maybe that says more about how little I view a lot of modern action movies than how much I view this, but I definitely didn't hate it. No, I think that's, I think that's a fair point. And I think the modern pacing is, is a really relevant kind of observation because I think it's one of the very few Star Trek films, which has actually aged well, and, and I don't mean in terms of special effects or anything like that, they're garbage. I mean, they're, oh, this yeah. film just looks like absolute 
you know, nothing. It's just, the special effects are just. I mean, Tom Baker would be ashamed of them. You know, yeah. they're, they're, they're you know they're terrible. It looks just awful. But I, just, I think entirely. Yeah. I was just gonna add. I think this is the only movie not done by I- IOM. From what I was. Yeah, it shows. Yeah. Like yeah. everything else, there had ILM, but now they're tied up in some other movie and couldn't do the special effects for this one. Yeah. So now we have we're back to things on strings and and uh, you know cardboard shuttlecraft on sticks. It yeah, it looks terrible. But you're right about the pacing. It's it's sharp. Um, it keeps moving at a clip. Um, you know we have a, a few um, you know ringers in the cast who are, are propping things up. David Warner is here. Yeah, can't go wrong with a bit of David Warner. <laughs> Um, you know, and it, it, it clips along nicely. And I think one of the things that I really admire about it is that it really commits to its own aesthetic is maybe a strong word, but it kind of commits. I don't know. I can't think of another one off the top of my head. So it really commits to its own sort of aesthetic. William Shatner clearly has something very specific in mind that he wants to do with this movie. And some of it is a knockabout adventure. Some of it is is reaching not necessarily successful but reaching for something to say about you know the human condition and all that kind of stuff which is fine that's all very in line with star trek i think it becomes too literal and and too uh too on the nose uh, but like that scene with um mccoy uh, you know and talking about his father um, and having to euthanize him and then six months later they find a cure that's one of those powerful scenes in all of Star Trek it's really amazing like DeForest Kelly is just genius in that but you know you wouldn't get a scene like that I don't think in a Leonard Nimoy movie you wouldn't get a scene like that in a, in a you know whatever it's just something very specific to, to uh, William Shatner that he's prepared to go to uncomfortable moments and not kind of cringe at them or not cringe away from them and there are plenty of cringy moments in this movie but that's also kind of the point it's kind of abrasive in that way i think intentionally and i like that i don't always enjoy necessarily watching it but i really admire that kind of commitment to to being kind of awkward and and not just sort of fitting in with everything else yeah i i I think i agree the commitment to being awkward it's a very like Bull movie, like even with its little special effects, they go for a lot. They try to realize this entire like desert wasteland Mad Max vibe, like planet with a Moss Eisley Cantina ripoff bar in the middle of it. <laughs> and I mean, it's obviously not as successful as either of those franchises I just cited, but it so it's an attempt. <laughs> and the whole God thing is also a big attempt to do something. And I mean, as cheesy as the line is as cheesy as delivery is i do love what does god need with a starship i mean that is I like i love that line it's a I great love line. that <laughs> this yeah. is, i think there's a reason that it sticks in the mind i'm sorry i, I don't mean to interrupt no. you but that whole scene is so well realized and people always say oh, what does god need with the starship and obviously that is the key line but it's what kirk does before that he kind of comes forward Shatner gives a little finger rise as if he's kind of berating like a first year cadet or something. And Kirk is really intentionally, I think, undermining this pompous arse that thinks he's God. Um, and he gets a lightning bolt for his trouble. But still, I, I love that line. I love that scene. I'm a huge defender of it. Um, I, I think it's great. Yeah, I think it's a great scene too. Even if 
you then cut, you reverse cut to the god, and he's just a giant pillar of light with a weird face inside of it. Yeah, that's that's less awesome. Yeah, <laughs> no, no question about that. But <laughs> I mean, that's that's sort of the tension of this movie is you have all these big swings that don't work, but then all these big swings that kind of do and are at least interesting. And I mean, given that I mean, we're talking about like Doctor Who here with affection for that show, that show is nothing but big swings <laughs> that sometimes don't work, but sometimes really do. And you watch it for the ones that really do. And I would much rather watch a movie that bothered to take big swings, even if they don't miss. You know, we've said many times in this podcast, we prefer something which, you know, took a swing and a miss. An interesting failure is better than kind of bland competency. And I think, you know, Star Trek V is pretty much the case in point for that. It's, it's, it's the proof of the pudding. I mean, I, 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 I'm always loath to use this as an excuse, but I think of all the um, ways that Star Trek movies are put together, um, I think you can really tell that this one was hit by a writer's strike. Because, um, you know, I, I, I'm always, I'm very much about just judging what we have in the screen. What we have in the screen is sometimes good, sometimes not so much. Um, but, you know, that's what we have. But at the same time, it's really clear that this film got to a certain point. The script needed another couple of passes to polish it off. And that just never happened because there was a writer's strike. And I think particularly the whole thing about God, for whom we get no explanation at all. Nothing, not even a few lines of exposition. He's just this thing on a planet. We don't know why he's there. We don't know why he can't escape. We don't know if he's been imprisoned. We don't know if he's native. We don't know if he's, uh, you know, this is nothing. It's just a thing that exists in, in kind of this abstract term. And I suppose if you want to think about religion as an abstract concept, then you could try and link that in. But more likely, I think, you know, the script just needed another pass so that we got some explanation of, of what this movie's bad guy actually is. And that's a shame because I think it does do damage to the movie that it didn't have that opportunity to have maybe another couple of passes. But at the same time, I, I, I do kind of like this movie. I, 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 I think it's uh, I think it's thoroughly entertaining, and, and whilst it would be nice if there was a scope for it to have been tweaked a wee bit, I, I don't think, uh, other than the special effects, I don't think there's that much that goes that far wrong here. And I think Cybok's an interesting idea. Yeah, Cybok is an interesting idea. I think the half-brother thing is a little much, even if it does give the great line of it's never come up, <laughs> or however, <it's, laughs> uh, however Nimoy phrases it. But... Uh, beyond that, it is just kind of thrown in there for some extra drama. But everything else about Cybok is very interesting. This sort of cult leader vibe he has going on and the sort of need to want to see this magnificent thing and that sort of overriding it. I like how everyone starts, and maybe there's a little brainwashing of all, but how everyone starts to believe in his mission. <laughs> and I find that like a compelling aspect to the character. It's like he's he's a villain, but he's not really... An antagonist, or maybe I have this yeah. backwards, but you get the point. He's he may be not the purest character, and he may be causing trouble for the first two thirds of the movie. But at the end of the day, he's in sort of the same boat they are. They all just want the same goal to check out this uh, cool light in space, essentially. <laughs> and I I know I think that it's very interesting that he is sort of on the side of our heroes at the end of it. And I like the fact that we get what is essentially, you know, Vulcan taboo. Um, that's kind of not something that we've come across in Star Trek up to that point. The idea that there might be people, 
you know, in Vulcan society who push back against this idea of, of uh, you know, motionlessness and, and logic. That's that's really not something which has come up at this stage. It will come up again in, in, in sort of future Trek. But here, this is kind of the first time we, we have that taboo being broken. And I think that's also, you know, an interesting way of expanding um, the world of Star Trek without it just being, you know, another new planet or whatever. It, it's broadening the perspective on a, on a race we're already familiar with. I, I really commend that. I think that's fantastic. And, um, you know, it's a good performance as well. Um, that's fine. I think it's interesting that he's, that, that he's never been mentioned again. Even, like, even Star Trek Discovery, which just can't leave Spock alone for whatever reason for its cup, first couple of seasons like it never came up like once again it never came up that he has this half brother uh, even even whilst we're also dealing with his half uh, his half sister so it's a uh, it's a bit weird uh, but anyway I, no i i really like the idea of cyborg and um yeah i like the fact that he's an antagonist but he's not de facto a bad guy in fact th there's a whole thing about that because at the end cyborg sacrifices himself um to kind of save the day and he sort of says, oh, well, I deserve it. You know, it's this is my, you know, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but basically it's his penance. Um, but I don't really know that it is. Nobody dies in this movie. No, he, he's inconvenienced a starship and he's brainwashed a few people, which isn't admittedly great behavior. I don't know if it's so bad that it demands a sort of blood sacrifice, um, you yeah. know, to put it right. So, um, yeah, that's 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 slightly weird. But again, I suspect that's probably just a, a consequence of the fact that you know the script needed another another run over. But even so, no, I really like Cyborg. I think it's a great idea, and I like like you talked about the kind of the slight, slightly blank aloofness of, of Spock in in the last movie. But that's also exactly how he reacts to the uh, the appearance of his half brother here. It's exactly the same reaction, and that's just incredibly pleasing. Right. And I also want to shout out Lawrence Luckenbill, who I think does a great job uh, considering, like for every other movie, the villain role is this big ringer who they bring in and who like eats up the scenery. But here, it was going to be Sean Connery, which definitely fits in with Christopher Lloyd, Christopher Plummer, Ricardo Maltabon. But uh, Connery wasn't available, so they cast Luckenbill, uh, who's just this total unknown. But he's a great, he does a great job. I really like him in this movie as the villain. Well, he, he has presence. I mean, yeah. he can hold the screen. And if you're going to cast somebody as this cult leader or kind of like even televangelist or like somebody in that kind of mold, you, you need somebody. I would have been fascinated to see Sean Connery in this. That would have been what an alternative universe that would be. Oh, that'd be awesome. But, you know, yeah, he can really hold that, that center point where he's, you know, working his magic or whatever it is. And it's effective, and it works when it's you know some uh, you know a homeless peasant on the on the dust planet you know in the opening uh, sort of few seconds. But it works as well when it's um, against our regular characters, you know, our, our our familiar cast, and that's that's not nothing. And the fact that he is kind of um, able to pull that off, it does make that it's really important that core part of the movie works and i think almost it might benefit from the fact that it's not a sean connery it's not a christopher uh, Plummer or whatever you know it, it is somebody that's relatively unknown because you're not going to be distracted by the fact that uh oh hey it's james bond or you know whatever it's it's just it's just this guy that has the ability to hold that presence and yeah i think i think he's fabulous yeah 
it's absolutely like I think it just works. It works on a gut level, and even if you can sort of intellectualize this whole movie and sort of pick it apart, I think on a gut level, the scenes move, the character interactions are fun. I really love the bookends around the campfire, where you have the first that's like very like jovial and silly with the marshmallows and all of that. <laughs> but then also, uh, and then it ends with a much more melancholy note. And even if the, the tone of the movie doesn't quite, I think, earn melancholy, it's so ludicrous and over the top before then that, and the cyborg Spock relationship isn't really fleshed out enough for that to really hit home. I think it's a great attempt. Like, I think it's an interesting direction for sure to start to bookend it with the same scene, one's happy, one's sad. And I, I really like that the sort of grace note was taken, that it ends on this sort of off-color moment. Well, one of the other things, I, I, I do completely agree with that. And I think one of the things which is really important to, that, uh, to those two scenes that bookend the movie is McCoy. And McCoy hasn't been a massive presence during those uh, during the movies uh, to date. He's had scenes, uh, obviously he's had the whole Catra thing, Spock and whatever, but he's always been, you know, the, the, the movies have predominantly focused up until this point on Kirk and Spock, which is perfectly understandable. But one of the things I really like about this movie, and again, I'm, I'm giving William Shatner credit for this um, because I really think it's coming from him. But I really love the fact that they give McCoy so much more to do. And that first scene around the campfire when they're kind of, uh, you know, the whole marshmallows thing. But it's one of the very few scenes in the Star Trek movies that really demonstrate what it is that McCoy is bringing to the table. We've had the bond of friendship between Kirk and Spock. We've had, you know, the fact that they'll, they'll sacrifice friends and careers and, and everything in order to save each other. But McCoy has always been kind of sidelined. And yet... At that first scene, we really get to see what it is McCoy is bringing to the table. He's got this kind of warmth and gruffness, um, and and you know they're knocking back bourbon from a you know a glass bottle or whatever, and you see that warmth and friendship between Kirk and McCoy in a way that I just don't think any other scenes in the movie have managed up to that point. And I, I like I say I really give Shatner credit for that, and it's there again at that final scene, where. Um, there is more of a, a, a hint of melancholy. And like historically, we can't help, or one can't help uh, see that as well, because this is the last time the crew just get to be in a silly knockabout adventure. We'll talk about Star Trek Six in a minute, um, but it's much more serious. It's much more thoughtful. It's much more considered. This is the last time they just basically get to dick about. That's more or less what it comes <laughs> down to. And that's exactly what they do. And McCoy's perfect for that. You know, he's got that core scene in the middle. I know I mentioned it earlier. Um, but he's got that core scene in the middle where he carries the emotional weight of that kind of conversion scene to, uh, with the, the, the euthanizing of his father, which is, I mean, you can't get a better scene than that in Star Trek. You know, it's just just the way the Forrest Kelly plays that is amazing. And so, so McCoy is given some perspective. We have the warmth, we have the huge depth of humanity that the character has, but it's, it's sometimes friendship, it's sometimes compassion and is, you know, the drive that made him a doctor and all the rest. It's just, it's so great. I love McCoy in this movie. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm giving William Shatner 110% credit for that. Yeah, I, I think especially compared to the first three movies that we talked about a few weeks ago, um, these three movies do McCoy so much better. Like, all of them. 
Yeah. And I mean, well, it's almost like an arc of going up, giving him more to do. And we'll talk about what how great he is in six soon. But yeah, this movie definitely uses him the most compared to the four previous. Um, and really gets into that three-sided relationship rather than just the Kirk and Spock side. So yeah, I mean, all this to say, I completely agree. It's a fantastic showcase for Kelly. And I'm glad that it's, it's very generous with the cast. I think besides Michelle Nichols, who still gets the fan dance, but otherwise is pretty sidelined. I love uh, her fan dance. <laughs> it's so bizarre, but yeah, I love it's it too. It's just awesome. I love the fact. This is this is again. This is my my whole thing about like Shatner being deliberately awkward. But like, just the idea that they gave this incredibly beautiful middle aged woman with a huge streak of gray hair in her a uh, gray hair, uh, you know, in her hairdo. She's the one that gets to be the sexy chanteuse who's kind of beguiling the men. Now, you may you may want to know where she got her fronds from. That's not for me. I don't know if they're standard Starfleet issue. I just don't know, and I don't want to know. But I love the fact that the, the movie is so unapologetic about putting a conspicuously middle-aged woman. It's not like, you know, um, some slender, slinky, convenient ensign that's sent out to seduce the men. It's just this beautiful middle-aged woman who's put in that position. I just, I love that. Nichelle Nichols, of course, plays it perfectly. Of course she does. She couldn't do anything else. But it's, again, it's so unapologetic about it. And it's not, um, you know, it, it's it, it's sort of progressive in the way I think Star Trek, Star Trek should be, which is it just presents it as is, and you have to get on board with it. There's no justification. Why should there be? It's just this beautiful woman. And that's fabulous. That's so exactly how it should be. I, 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 I adore that fan dance thing. I'm sorry, I cut you off again. I didn't mean to, but I had to say that. But no, I think it sort of shows that how Shatner seems like a very generous director. Yeah. And I mean, I, when you were saying that, I was just looking at the Wikipedia page and came across this quote uh, from George Takei. And I love how it's framed. I mean, to sum up and not read the whole thing, he just talks about how it was great working with uh, Shatner and how he didn't let the pressures of the studio get to him, and then they just kept a very fun atmosphere on set that the cast really enjoyed. But the way it's turned to Wikipedia is like, and this is coming from Takei, <laughs> he may have had history. <laughs> um, so yeah, I it feels like even if the end result wasn't received well by audiences or critics, uh, the people working on it had a great time, and I feel like it's something that fun and energy really bleeds through, like fan dancing included. Edit well, yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree, and that that fun and energy is is just what makes this this film, you know, worth watching. I'm I'm so pleased you liked it. I can't tell you, it makes me makes me very happy that I'm not the only person in the world prepared to defend Star Trek Five. Um, but anyway, okay, let's 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 draw a veil over this one and let's get to the let's get to the final movie in the sequence. So Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country. Kev, would you care to give us a summary? In Star Trek Six. Uh... The Klingon moon of Praxis is destroyed in an analog to our Chernobyl in our world, which means also an analog to our world. The Klingons and humans start seeking amnesty, similar to our Cold War. Uh, as part of those peace negotiations, uh, the Klingon general, looking up the name Gorkon, who is the ch chancellor for the Klingons, played by the great David Warner once again, uh, is assassinated by a false flag attack that seems to come from the Enterprise. As Spock looks to unravel that mystery, Kirk and McCoy take the blame, uh, thanks to the machinations of Christopher Plummer's 
Chang, Gorkon's right-hand man. Uh, Kirk and McCoy are sent to a prison planet where they have to break out. Uh, Spock helps them do that. Then they find the assassin, who were led by a new Vulcan, Valeris. Uh, and then they prevent another attack on the human uh, chancellor. And yeah, uh, wrap those threads up, give a nice speech about how we need peace, and the accords are signed. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So we come to the end of, of uh, Star Trek, the original series, in, in any meaningful sense. And there's nothing meaningful about their brief appearance in uh, Star Trek Generations. So, yeah, this is kind of where we leave the original crew. Um, I'm, I'm not going to hedge my bets here. I think this is the best Star Trek movie full stop. I don't think there's anything that can come within half a galaxy's worth of, of light years uh, in terms of the, the, the quality of this movie. I think it's basically perfect. And that's that's my that's basically going to be what I'm saying for the next however many minutes. But uh, how did you find it as a first timer? Uh, full agree. I mean, I, <laughs> I, the only Star Trek movies I haven't seen are the four next generation ones, but I know the repu- they're mixed reputation, so I can't imagine my mind being changed on this being the best Star Trek movie. It absolutely is the best Star Trek movie. Uh, it just hits everything I think about when I think about Star Trek so well. It has the sort of political angle. It has a sort of meaningful, uh, this has a purpose to it angle. But then it also has a lot of action. Like the whole prison planet scenes are fantastic. It has these sort of like logic, deductive reasoning scenes where Spock is trying to flesh out the traitor. It has all of these little elements that like sort of add up to a whole of Star Trek, which is a lot because Star Trek is a very flexible franchise. But everything you think of from like William Shatner beating up a person to uh, thinking things out through like not through punching, but through these sort of more logical deductive reasoning this movie has, and I think that just works so well for it. Yeah, I completely agree, of course. And it's so well-constructed. That's that's really the thing. I admire the construction of this movie so much. It's very elegant. Even the, the whole thing about having sort of Sulu off to one side, not being part of the main cast, I kind of, I love, um, because it even as this is the end of the original crew, it, it, you know, it suggests that there are further adventures, you know, things move on, we don't live in stasis. I love the fact that, that um, Sulu is off to one side in this story and that construction, so you have the explosion in Praxis, it draws us into the it draws us into the adventure. We have the scenes on Earth, those beautiful, awkward, again, I'm, I'm praising awkwardness, that beautiful, awkward scene between Kirk and Spock, um, you know, you should have trusted me all that stuff and then we gradually get pulled into the the the, you know the meat of the movie it's all very elegantly constructed there's a murder mystery to be solved there's you know an assassination plot which needs to be foiled there's only really one space battle but it's a it's a killer you know that that whole thing at the end beautiful shot of the uh, the klingon bird of prey exploding all that stuff it all just kind of wraps into one sort of perfect package. I, I have so much admiration for the way that this movie is, is, is bolted together. Yes. I mean, bolted together, it works so well. It just is so many different parts, but working in harmony together, like clockwork. It's just, even if there's it's moving tonal shifts all over the place, those all work in concert, just create this beautiful overall picture of a movie. 
And yeah, I, I maybe we just tackle each sort of section on its own. I love the initial sort of meeting between the humans and Klingons, and you have Kirk dealing with his prejudice as he meets David Warner and Christopher Plummer on their ship, and they drink and they like get a little like um, uh, testy with each other over a dinner table. Yeah, it's such a it's such a an interesting idea to have um, that kind of questioning going on throughout this movie. The idea, you know, particularly when it comes to the original show, and I think this is something which is contextually a little bit lost to time, but particularly when it comes to the original show, you know, which was always meant to be this kind of beacon of, of, of light and, and uh, progressiveness and, and uh, you know, forward-looking social progress, all those kind of things. That's always been a core element of the show. Um, and it's become more so since Next Generation kind of carried the flame forward. That's because Toss isn't particularly utopian, but but uh, Next Generation really is. Um, but of course, the show was still seen as being incredibly modern and progressive. So the idea of interrogating uh, Kirk's prejudices in that kind of way, and particularly um, in regards to Klingons, and particularly because a Klingon was, was responsible for the death of his kind of estranged son, that's a really brave thing to try and do. And it's, yeah, that whole scene, that whole dinner party scene, again, I keep saying it's one of the best in Star Trek, but it is, you know, these all three of these films really do kind of come up with some of the best examples of, of what Star Trek can do. And that, that dinner scene is such a great way of doing it. That, you know, inalienable human values, even the term is racist, all that kind of stuff, you know. It's just, it's suddenly going after our crew and these kind of, unspoken prejudices sometimes spoken prejudices as well um and that's such a brave thing to do they, they, yeah obviously they knew this was going to be the last outing when this film was put together oh that's why we get the signatures at the end and the handover and where no one has gone before and all that stuff so for that to be the tone that you take essentially what's the point of you you know that's that's a really brave thing to do in your in your final outing and and to confront Kirk's prejudice in that way so explicitly I think is a a really kind of brave and daring kind of creative choice. I mean, absolutely, and I think it shows it's more progressive to sort of confront prejudice than present it as never existing in a way. Yes. And Star Trek, I think, leans towards the never existing side of the spectrum. I think that works for comfort food. I think, like, Star Wars, I never want... Star Wars, right now, there's no idea of racism except maybe against some aliens. There's no idea of sexism or homophobia. And that works for Star Wars. <laughs> I just, you just don't want that in your action-adventure show. But with Star Trek, I think a franchise more equipped to sort of handle these ideas, I like the idea of directly challenging a character's beliefs. And but also still through that sci-fi lens. So there is no racism as we know it here. Uh, they can still find an angle on it. So it still can double as escapism and something that's a little more meaningful. And what I like about the way that they do that as well is the fact that there are multiple prejudices. So mm -hmm. it's all very well to say, oh, well, of course, Kirk has history with Klingons. Of course he does, because, you know, that's Star Trek, you know, that's basically what Star Trek is. Um, and that's fine. Um, but they push it so much further than that. Uh, Valaris, um, uh, you know, her prejudices and Spock's of all people. Spock's prejudices are brought up. And that's really, again, I think a, a brave 
kind of place to push it because he he naturally trusts Valaris because she's a Vulcan and that's his prejudice he's he's it's it's um it's unconscious bias I think that's what you would call it he's mm. unconsciously biased towards Valaris because she's a Vulcan but that turns out to be an incredibly bad blind blind spot to have again that's really brave to have those kind of things um challenged i think valaris is a great character i must be honest for a long time i was not a big fan of of kim cattrall and i've really come to um, uh, admire her and appreciate her um i think partly because i i don't think sex in the city is a very good show uh, to put it mildly um and so there were some unfortunate associations there uh, but i think she really does a good job with Valaris and I've really especially having seen a lot of Mystery Science Theatre 3000 and a lot of the kind of you know Z grade movies that she's kind of suffered her way through I feel terribly sorry for her but I'm glad she got to do some proper legitimate sci-fi um I think she's great as Valaris and and the way that um Valaris's prejudices are are sort of confronted entirely logically and entirely in line with kind of a certain strand of interpretation of Vulcan belief, but obviously not the same one that, that say Spock would have. I think that's handled really well, and and I I, I greatly um, I greatly appreciate again the, the 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 choices to push these characters into those places. Oh yeah, for sure. And I like the framing of Valeris as like this is new Savic at first, and then doing that sort of rug pull where the character doesn't change, but new light is sort of revealed from her. And I think Cattrall plays that so well, where at first you could just believe, oh, this is, of course, just another fresh face, because this franchise likes to have a fresh face in it among our regular crew. Uh, we are just talking about from the Catherine Hicks from the fourth movie, in that same light. Yeah. But this is such a nice twist on it, to have her not just be an ally, but to sort of be the crux of this mystery story I think works so well as a twist. And like you said, also helps examine these sort of prejudices in a way the franchise hasn't really done before. So here's a question for you. Do you think it would be better if this character was Savic? That's a good question. I don't know. I, it would be more meaningful in some ways and more distracting in others. Because, like like you said, like it is interesting to see like it's Kirk dealing with his prejudices, it's Spock dealing with his prejudices. So it's Savic dealing with his prejudices. That makes a big impact. But at the same time, I don't know, the personality of this character feels a little different just off enough that it'd be like, is, is that Savic is, uh, wants to betray the Federation? That doesn't seem right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I think, I think there was a, a period of time, if I'm not mistaken, that that's, it was going to be Savic. And I, I don't know why that fell through. Uh, no, I wasn't desperate for Robin Curtis to return, but I'd have been perfectly fine if Kirstie Alley had. Um, I don't know. I think, again, it's another one of those kind of that it would be interesting. But I think regardless, I think what we have um, just works incredibly well. And I, I um, well, with one exception, which is the kind of the, the mind rape, uh, which is just the only bum yeah. note in this entire movie, which is just horrible and awful. And I know Nicholas Myers apologized for it, quite rightly so. Um, and so is basically everybody involved. That's deeply unfortunate and, and very very uncomfortable in all the wrong ways not the right ones um, but that aside I, 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 I really I, yeah I really like Valaris I think she's a great character and uh, really such a such a benefit to the movie and sort of sort of moving on from her a, a wee bit as well the way that um, 
I think prejudice is also not something which is restricted to the human characters, but it's very clearly something which exists in the Klingons as well. is is also a, a really smart move because it would I think it would have been very easy to play the Klingons in this story with a kind of um, I don't want to say a racial analogy, but it would be too very easy to simply portray them as as um, victims because the Klingons but you know just the, you know the, the the people who are having to suffer the the, the brunt of this kind of uh, prejudice so to have them also be prejudiced and to have them also overcome that prejudice at the end of the movie I think it's also really important because it's I think it's it's that sense of perspective you know that that um, that makes this work and the understanding that uh, our our good guys have flaws and those need to be confronted not ignored um but so do the people on the other side of the table they have their prejudices and they need to be confronted and that's where we make progress that's how we get to the point where we can get peace where um these two otherwise implacable enemies can be reconciled together and that's such a again it would have been an easy thing to miss i think but because this is so well put together um the, the prejudice exists on both sides and we're able to see the impact of of dealing with that directly rather than ignoring it or pretending that it doesn't exist. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have such a good contrast in David Warner's Gorkhan and Christopher Plummer's Chang, where Warner is this very much peacemaker. He's even styled to look like Abraham Lincoln yeah. <laughs> with that beard and everything. And then Chang is, you know, he has an eye patch glued to his face. I mean, there's no subtleties about where this character's allegiance lies. Um, and then I think sort of in the middle and then eventually leaning towards the side of justice is uh, Rosanna de Soto as Gorkin's daughter, uh, as it were, Wikipedia says, uh, who sort of takes place as sort of the lead Klingon uh, peacemaker. I think she does a great job without very many scenes, but like it all sort of comes to her to overcome her human prejudice in the midst of all of this. And she really sells that arc in the few scenes she has well. Oh, no, she really does. And, yeah, she doesn't get an awful lot to work with, but it's still a really pivotal role. You know, there's that final scene at the end where um, where her and Kirk are able to kind of finally reconcile, um, you know, you've restored my faith, you've restored my father's. Um, it's really important that that, that scene is there. Um, and, yeah, given not an awful lot to work with, it's, it's a pretty... Yeah, it's a pretty solid character all around, and that's always. I think that's true of everybody in this kind of, uh, in this kind of movie. Everybody gets something that really contributes. Uh, I mean, we haven't even talked about Christopher Plummer yet, and we have to because, oh my God, he's so good. <laughs> uh, he's just the best fruity voice lunatic you could ever hope for in a movie. That that cry, let's let the dogs have war. It's just fabulous. I mean, how, who couldn't love that? Um, but again, when he needs to, it's he reins it in. Those scenes where him and Kurt go eyeball, eyeball to eyeball in the transporter room, and he's that that it's suddenly it's not camp. Suddenly it's it's in deadly earnest, and and he's just the perfect person to kind of embody that you know sort of freewheeling um idiocy but also have real threat behind him as well and the way that him and kirk are mirrored in this movie um i think is also really well i keep saying well constructed but it is um so i'm gonna keep saying it um but yeah the idea that um 
you know, he can't let go of his prejudices and he dies. Kirk is able to let go of his prejudices and he lives. I mean, it's not stated as bluntly as that in the movie, thank goodness. But that's very clearly what they're getting at. You know, Kirk is able to move beyond history. Chang is not. The end result is Chang is blown into a million bits. Um, yeah, such a such a great character, such a great performance. And again, just adds so much weight to the movie. I mean, yeah, I co-sign all of that. Uh, all of the Shakespeare quoting is so good and such a great hook. And it really is such like a build to the performance where he's starting off not subtle, but like much more um, subdued in this dinner scene where he's still like sort of cavorting and flashing up neon signs that he's the villain and everything like that. But uh, he's just sort of sitting in his chair and sort of talking low. And then at the end, he is shouting Shakespeare as he spins around in his chair. And that is... <laughs> such a night and day performance and it works so well to have that build even when he disappears in that middle of the movie you miss him and it you love it when he comes back even if it's bad news for our heroes oh yeah but that's so great you know that's you know you you hold him back so that when he arrives it carries a real impact that's so that's so clever he don't, they don't keep just dropping him in they just let him be held back and i think one of the other things about chang is the way that Christopher Plummer um, plays the role. Um, I mean, I mean, really, the, the the Shakespeare stuff ought to be a bit cliched. Um, and I criticize the Wrath of Khan for doing that kind of slightly facetious Moby Dick thing. Um, but the way that Plummer delivers or has Chang deliver the lines, it really sounds like Chang understands that whole thing about Shakespeare being better than the original Klingon ought to be corny, but it's not. And it's not because of the way that Plummer really gets in to the way that um, Shakespeare works. Like that, like, like the cry havoc and let's let the doves of war as he spins around in his chair. But that is exactly how you should deliver that line. Okay. Maybe not in a spaceship with a, by a Klingon, but still that's you know, that's a, that really is a legitimate way of, of playing that line. In, in the play and it's great that's that's so it, it there's a real intelligence to chang um he isn't just like like the klingons in star trek 5 are pointless they don't really fulfill any function other than this is star trek star trek has klingons here therefore here is star trek klingons that's they don't really have anything they're just there in star trek 5 in this they have a real function there's a real purpose to using the Klingons in this and Chang is kind of the, the 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 core of that you know he has that understanding he's able to look at human culture take something from it but uh, understand it but also kind of miss the point as well it's it's a, a, just one of the best characters I love Chang so much yeah he really is everything what you expect typical Klingon to be but then also in the wrong context he's like this is the past what we're moving past essentially i think that's such like a powerful symbol um yeah i want to i think we need to talk about this uh space court and space prison now because <laughs> those are such big parts of the movie that take up most of the middle of it and they are great it's so fantastic if the if the last movie was so low budget and clearly um like a rinkening operation, this is the opposite. It is so well realized. Uh, Rurapente, like, 
could actually stand up to some of the scenes in Star Wars, maybe are at least on the B level, not a D level, compared to the D level of the last movie. Yeah. Uh, I think the way that Ruripenthe is put together is, I, I, I don't know whether it's intentional or not, but I, I feel like it's playing with audience expectations. So when Kirk and McCoy are, are kind of sent there from, the, from the, the court, and that courtroom scene, but I'll come back to this, but that courtroom scene is just... Wow, that's just so good. But anyway, um, like when we get to Ruripenthe and we get, especially when we get into where all the miners are and blah, 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 all that stuff, um, it kind of looks like sort of default Star Trek, which is to say you've got a couple of sets. It's, you know, the rocks aren't the most convincing rocks you've ever seen in your life. It's clearly studio bound. It's clearly, you know, uh, you know, indoors, it's a set. Um, and then when they're making their escape, they're making their way through the usual collection of kind of cardboard corridors or whatever. And then they suddenly emerge out onto this massive ice field. Um, and suddenly it becomes real. And I, 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 I say, I don't know if it's intentional, but it feels like it's playing with expectations. You know, like, here's the standard Star Trek set. It looks like a Star Trek set. Ta-da! Here's the outside. And it's lovely. It just suddenly expands like, you know, we've been to many kind of, you know, hostile asteroids before. And yeah, they're usually just a couple of rooms and, and maybe a guard station or something. And that's it. And suddenly they walk out this vast ice sheet as the sun's going down. And the helicopter is getting amazing shots from above and all the rest of it. It's, it's kind of breathtaking. And again, in a way that you don't often get, I think, with Star Trek movies. It, it's really effective they might i don't know i don't think this is a particularly high budget movie but um what they've got the resources they've got they've really deployed in the right the right places so you you get um those big moments of wonder that carry that much more impact because you've been set up to think okay it'll be a couple of actors scrambling across this paramount back lot somewhere and fake snow blowing in their face. No, they've had the bother to go to, you know, this vast ice field and actually film outside. It's incredibly impressive. I mean, yeah, this, everything about that is like, they went to, like you said, I think you may have not said the state, but they went to Alaska to film all that. And it's just, it shows it's on location shooting and everything in that prison. It, like all of the different aliens, even if most of them can't talk because of the makeup on them, like just the look of it is fantastic. Yeah. And then you have Iman showing up as the shapeshifter, who like even in her regular form looks amazing because she's Iman and she's wearing cool makeup. But then the whole concept of the shapeshifter and having Shatner fight himself—that's all just so much fun. <laughs> oh, that's such a that's again that's a really cheesy moment, but it's also it's the right kind of cheesy moment because Star Trek is cheesy, you know the original at least. That's that's part and parcel of why we love it, and so the idea of um, you know William Shatner fighting himself and I can't believe I kissed you. It must have been your you know wildest dream. All that stuff is so cheesy but it's just the right kind like even the even the morphing special effects you know it stands up pretty well i mean this was released the same year as, as terminator 2 so like morphing special effects were very much the same you know sorry very much the um the the thing it was that was that was the special effect of the moment um and it looks good we've, we've never seen something like that in star trek before it looks great 
and and just those little things, those little moments where where you know the movie just pops where it needs to. It's it's just like tonally all the way through. Every single decision they make is right, and yeah. Like, they have Iman. That's ridiculous. What is Iman doing in this movie? But she's perfect, you know. It, she's such a striking person to have. But she plays it all perfectly. She's absolutely ideal for it. So, uh, yeah, just every single time they, they come up to one of these decisions, they make the right choice. That is such, like, a good uh, just way to summarize it all. I mean, not that we're done yet, but, uh, yeah, just they keep making the right choice. And every choice pays off. Like everything in this movie is working in concert together to just cut a wide swath. Like it's a perfect swan song because every choice is being made and everyone gets a chance to shine and every aspect of the show is being highlighted as I understand it. And then it's just adds up to this movie that is, that just feels tight as a drum and absolutely perfect. There's nothing I would cut or say it does wrong. It is such a good, good movie. And even, even above and beyond everything we've talked about so far, all the choices, all the decisions, all the perspectives, all that stuff, what I admire so much about this movie is that it's, like you said, it's a perfect swan song. And I, I, I cannot agree with that more. I, I 100% agree, 1,000% agree. But one of the reasons I think it is a perfect swan song is that it's, okay to move on it's not you know adventures from now until forever this is the end of the line and it's conspicuously the end of the line they fly off into the sunset we get signatures you know the theme tune swells the whole thing and it's done and these characters have served their time and they've mattered and they've made a difference and that's such a but they also they're passing the torch you know Worf is in this and okay fine you can say it's not our Worf and you can but you know it's Worf Worf is in this there's a conspicuous visible representation of the next generation which I, th I think was in its third season when Undiscovered Country was released um, so there's that there's the change from where no man where no one has gone before. There's a very deliberate passing of the torch and the understanding that these characters have stood when they needed to stand, but now it's time to stand down. That doesn't make what they did um, meaningless or worthless, quite the opposite. Uh, it makes it have value, but there's also value in moving on. And I think that's what that where no man, where no one, and, and, the, and worth being in this, that's what that kind of symbolizes. And I love that. They didn't need to do that. They could have said, there'll be more, but they didn't. It's a passing, it's a real, genuine passing of the torch. Far more than that BS at the beginning of, I, I hate Generations so much. I hate that movie, I detest it. Anyway, this is beside the point. I just, I love the way that this ends with that passing of the torch and that acknowledgement that the time has come. It's such a bold choice that they did not have to make. But again, they made the right decision. Yeah, I... I don't know, I almost feel like we should end it because that's such a good summary. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't mean to draw the, the conversation to an unexpected close. <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think what's left. There is, I love, as I alluded to before, sort of Spock and then later Kirk with him, figuring out how to flesh out the assassins. That's a lot of very fun Sherlock Holmesian deductions going on. And I love the, uh, the ending scene at the UN where you have them almost like 
like a seventies paranoia thriller, stopping the sniper and <laughs> uh, running around these corridors. But yeah, it's it's just more examples of everything this movie does right, which is like great decisions being made at every turn, honoring the characters, giving everyone something to do, and really putting a perfect grace note on this sort of era of the franchise. Yeah, that's that's what it does so perfectly. It it, it really is the the kind of the ultimate grace note, and and the fact that it's able to, you know, it's you know, we've said over the last couple of movies, everyone gets something to do, not always necessarily big parts, and you know, obviously Sulu, I mean, he gets to kind of come in and 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 save the day at the the final thing, but the fact again, that thing I was saying before about everybody has the chance to move on, Sulu has already moved on. Um, so we already have that kind of theme embedded in the movie right from the opening sequence. You know, the first thing we ever see is the Excelsior out, you know, exploring geishas anomalies. I, I mean, it sounds like an exciting time. I'm sure he must have loved it. Um, and, you know, he's already moved on. That's the theme of the movie right from the word go. And it would have been easy, I think, at the end of the movie to have Sulu kind of stand next to the rest of the coup, rejoin it for him to be discipline for disobeying orders and coming to save the enterprise or, or whatever it is but he doesn't stand with the rest of the crew he turns up and you know he sulu gets that line about oh it was nice to see you in action one i think it's one more time not one last time um and then he goes off and does his own thing he doesn't stand with the rest of the crew it's it's, it's about moving on it's about moving past and every time that's what we come back to here. That's that's what makes it work. But everybody's given something to do, and that's that's Sulu's contribution to this. He's kind of the physical embodiment of that moving on. But Chekhov gets to have the funny scene with Luke, who's coming together, and the, if the boot fits, and and you know we get the um, you know comedy scene with Ahura try to um, you know, translate Klingon as they sneak into Klingon space. Like everyone gets something to do, and of course that's how it should be in their final outing. Everybody contributes something. Yeah, and I think that just does such a good job of honoring it as it draws a close. Like, it just does such a good job. And it's the send-off that they could all hope for, for sure. And I think that's probably as good a place to leave things as as we could possibly hope for. This has been great. I've loved being able to talk about Star Trek. It's been been, been really good fun and, and really interesting to discuss it with somebody who's never seen the movies before, which just seems... I, I can't imagine these have always been part of my life so it's it's uh, it was lovely so fabulous right let's yeah. move on let's uh let's dive into our recommendations what have you got for us this week Kev? all right so i'm because we've run a little long i'm going to do a quick recommendation this week something i'm probably going to come back to and read more of this series but i recently read all systems read the first entry in the Murderbot diaries as it's called this series centers on Murderbot, and it is a robot uh Mostly robot with a sort of cloned human tissue over front. Think like a Terminator. Unlike a Terminator, Murderbot has hacked its uh, sort of governing code and now acts independently. It tries to pretend it's being controlled by the company that creates uh, other robots like it. But instead, it mostly spends most of its missions watching daytime television that's downloaded. Um, yeah, the specifically All Systems Red is about a mystery where Murderbot is looking over a group of scientists doing a survey mission and things start going sideways. I won't reveal more because like it's part of the mystery and suspense is so much fun as you go through it. Uh, All Systems Red is it's a very short novella. It's like under 150 pages. So breeze through it in a weekend, give it a shot. It is fantastic. 
and I can't wait to read like four more of these stories that are out. It's a great character. It's it, the character robot. It's so funny, <laughs> just because it's the perfect like socially awkward, like a robot with the power to obviously like, kill people, but then it's socially awkward and just wants to be left alone and watch TV. Who can't relate? So. <laughs> I really recommend All Systems Red, and I will probably give an update once I've read more Murderbot stories. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, this week, I'm going to recommend something slightly um, unusual for our, our podcast, I suppose, which is to say I'm going to recommend a browser. And specifically, I'm going to recommend Vivaldi. Um, Vivaldi is basically a privacy-forward version of Chrome. Um, so it's built on Chromium technology. Um, it runs all the same plugins and, and extensions and everything that, that Chrome does. Um, but it's not just leaking data constantly to, to um, Google and, and Alphabet. Um, it's a really great browser. I run it on a Mac. Um, it's on PC and Android as well. Um, and it's a really good little browser. It's, it's very, very customizable. Um, it's extremely... Um, uh, usable it, it um, features things that lots of browsers do these days so um, suspended tabs which aren't being used so it's very light in resources um, it's just a really um, refreshing uh, thing to use and I don't think it gets a lot of publicity it was built by the same people who built um, Opera um, and then Opera kind of went off the rails and so they sort of went away and developed Vivaldi instead um, and, and Vivaldi is kind of um, what opera used to be done right, if that's a not strange way of putting it. Um, but it's a really terrific browser and it, it's very, very stable. Um, I've been running it for a few months now, I suppose, without any real issues. Like I say, all the all Chrome plugins, so you can use Chrome Store, all that stuff works. Um, and yeah, so if you kind of value um, privacy on the internet, uh, if you want to have uh, a system which really allows you to uh, control the data that you use and all the rest of it, um, and you don't necessarily want to have to tinker around with a thousand and one kind of deep dive settings, you just want something which will work and protect your privacy, and that's the end of the story, give Vivaldi a go. That's my recommendation this week. Fantastic. All right. Uh, if you want to send us an email, you can email us you at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at Talking Who to You. I'm on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. And you can now find me as a regular guest on the action movie podcast Total Massacre. I've done episodes on Jupiter Ascending and the new Mortal Kombat movie. And I haven't I should be talking about the Matrix, and that should be out, if not at the same time as this episode, soon after. Uh, you can find more JG's writings at jgmcquarry.scott. That is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot Scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. As I did with the last three uh, Star Trek movies, I'll also update kind of more uh, expanded reviews that I've written uh, to my blog. And uh, you can read there. If, if this was not enough of my um, deeply opinionated uh, approach to Star Trek, then there will be more to read there. Fabulous. Thank you very much. Next week, we were hoping to do The Ninth Doctor, but they're not out yet, so we're not. Uh, instead, we're going to return to the world of the Companion Chronicles. So that means we are going to be covering uh, The Mahogany Murders and The Drowned World. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. Keep talking.